So, I don't know the last time I have struggled so much to know what to say on a Sunday morning. Matthew 11 has been reading it and hours, way too many hours spent trying to figure out what is it I'm supposed to say today. And uh, this is the verse that ended up coming to me yesterday evening. This is from Isaiah 59. It says, The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. Yesterday, I think most of us heard about the bodies of 215 children buried in a residential school in Kamloops. 215 undocumented deaths of children as young as three years old. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. Hundreds of families who never knew what happened to the child who was taken away from them. 215 children vanished from their homes, never to be heard from again. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. The bodies of 215 undocumented children who were at a school with a long history of violence and sexual abuse of children in a school run in the name of Jesus, the Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. These 215 bodies are the undocumented ones. There are more. There are at least 50 children in that school whose deaths were properly recorded by the school. 4,100 children is the conservative estimate for the number of indigenous children who were forcibly removed from their homes, put into church-run schools, and died. If every school had the same number of undocumented deaths, it would put the number of dead children at over 17,000. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. The next line of Isaiah 59, 16, it says, Seeing that there was no one and a Astonished that no one would intervene, God's arm brought victory upheld by righteousness or justice. God looks. God is upset that his people don't know the way of peace, that there is no justice in their path, to quote Isaiah 59 verse 8. God looks and is upset that there is no justice in the land and is astonished that no one, not one of God's people, will do justice, will love mercy. And so God rolled up his sleeve and he does it himself. How does he do it? He sends a pagan nation. 
takes his people into exile. If they will not be a people of justice, he will remove them. He will work with others, even if they do not worship him, because God is a God of justice, and God cares about the poor and the oppressed. I'd like to give you a little church history lesson, a little American history. Between 1790 and 1870, the slave population of America exploded from 700,000 to nearly 4 million. The slave owners were busy, literally breeding people like livestock. They weren't human after all, or at least not fully human like white people. So we might as well breed them and sell them like cows. It was a very successful and very evil practice as given by the explosion of the population. This was generally supported by the church and ordained as God's will. But not everybody agreed with that. In fact, the most famous preacher of the time did not agree. Charles Finney has become one of my heroes of faith. Charles Finney is often considered to be the father of the modern revival. He led the Second Great Awakening in America. He was instrumental in spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus, around the country of America. We love these quotes, things like, uh, he says, a revival may be expected when Christians have a spirit of prayer for a revival. That is, when they pray as if their hearts were set upon it. When they go about groaning out their heart's desire, then they have real travail of soul. We like that. We like spiritual revival. We want the good news of Jesus to be spread. We want revival. We want the sweeping of God's spirit across our country. We want people to come to know Jesus, right? It's good. It sounds great. Pray for revival. But Finney was much more than he is usually given credit for. Here's another Finney quote that is much less popular. He said, revivals are hindered when ministers and churches take wrong ground in regard to any question involving human rights. You see, Finney was very political. The human rights issue that Finney attacked head on and was tackling every day was that of slavery. He drew a direct line between the low state of people's religious experience and church involvement and in in knowledge of the Spirit of God, and their failure to address the issue of slavery and human rights. He was tackling it head on. He says clearly that the, hear this clearly, the greatest revivalist preacher of his time, one of the most successful preachers of the gospel, who saw thousands and thousands of people give their lives to Jesus, believed the reason the church was not growing and vibrant was because it did not deal with the social justice issue of its time. And so Finney would preach these powerful sermons. He would give an altar call. He would invite people to come and align themselves with the kingdom of God. And then Finney would remind them that citizenship in the kingdom required allegiance to God's governance over and above all other human governance, including legal, social, economic, and the institution of slavery. Finney would call people to confess their personal sins and their systemic injustices of their lives. It was both and. I love how Lisa Sharon Harper summarizes his revivals. 
She says, when they wiped away their tears and opened their eyes, Finney thrust a pen into their hands and pointed them to the sign-up sheets of the abolitionist movement. This is what it meant to be an evangelical in the 1800s. It's probably not popular to say today, but this is the truth. People voted differently after a Finney revival. There was a marked increase in anti-slavery political parties after Finney had been in that city. This is what it meant to be an evangelical Christian in the 1800s. Historian David Bevington tells us that in the 1800s, there are four common traits to be an evangelical. They were conversionism, which was the belief, the conviction that all humanity had to be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They had to be transformed. They had to accept Christ and be converted from one kingdom to another to live then as subjects of the kingdom of God. The second key pillar of evangelicalism was activism, the conviction that it isn't simply enough to believe doctrines about God. You have to live differently. You have to live out your transformation with your hands and feet, things like becoming part of the abolitionist movement, voting differently, working for human rights, women's equality, anti-slavery, and so on. The third was Biblicism. They believed that the Bible was authoritative. It shapes how we are to understand what the kingdom of God is and how we are supposed to live and what we are supposed to do in this. And then finally, crucicentrism, meaning that the cross of Jesus stands at the center of our faith. The cross is the power of transformation for the world. It is what moves us from death into life and from freedom or from slavery into freedom. And so Spinney was a social progressive of his time. He advocated for the equal education of women and African Americans. He challenged the institution of slavery at every turn and called people to repent of systemic and corporate sin. Because, because he was centrally focused on Jesus and he read the scriptures. He believed the truth of what Paul wrote in Galatians 4 when he said, you are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. This wasn't him following the cultural winds of anti-slavery or women's equality. Finney was moved to his position because of the scriptures, because of his biblicism, because of his crucicentrism, because his belief in the Bible and the cross and conversion, it moved him to address these issues. But radicals all wear on people, especially when you don't like the preaching and teaching because it pushes against your economic security, your power, your privilege, and your comfort. And so at the turn of the 20th century, there's a split in the church. Now, this is not all because of Finney. That would be a gross oversimplifying it. And nonetheless, there is a radical split between what we call liberals and fundamentalists who later become evangelicals. In a gross oversimplification that takes no level of nuance, essentially what happens is liberals take activism to be their central point, and evangelicals take conversionism and biblicism to be theirs. This is my central thesis. At the turn of the 20th century, 
evangelical Christianity lost a central piece of what the gospel means. The gospel became a tract, became something that I can simplify to a Roman's road or a sinner's prayer. But friends, hear me clearly, that is not the whole gospel. To read the gospel this way requires a skimming of the text, a reinterpreting of the Bible that makes verses to be about our souls and ignores the calls to redistribute wealth, do justice to the oppressed. In the Matthew text we read today, John's disciples come to Jesus and they ask, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? You notice Jesus doesn't answer the question. (laughs) Instead, Jesus says, Go, report to John what you hear and see. Those who are blind are able to see. Those who are crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed. Those who are deaf now hear. And those who are dead are raised up. Poor, the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Happy are those who don't stumble and fall because of me. This Jesus is giving us is a summary of a number of Old Testament texts primarily Isaiah 61. It's interesting because Jesus also quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4 when he announces what his kingdom is like and what his ministry will be. There he takes the scroll, he finds the place, and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim the release to to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him, and he explained to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled as you heard it. Jesus gives us a glimpse into the kind of ministry that he is going to have, the kind of ministry that the king is going to. Isaiah 61 is central to the understanding of Jesus' ministry. It was good news to those who were on the underside. I find it so interesting that Isaiah 61 is so prominent in Jesus' self-understanding of his ministry because it's also in Isaiah 61, verse 8, that we read, I, the Lord, love justice. We see that a lot in the life and ministry of Jesus. So I've been pondering this for a long time now. This is becoming one of my passions. This is one of the hills that I am willing to die on. It is non-negotiable to me. Admittedly, I live it poorly, but I long to live a life of justice and reconciliation. I am committed to learning and growing and acting. I believe that you cannot understand the gospel if the gospel is not good news to the poor and to the oppressed, that we must bring back our activist and conversionist strains together to proclaim the whole gospel. There is a shaking in the North American church right now. The word evangelical does not mean what it used to mean. It has strayed from its original four defining characteristics, and I am convinced that the church moving forward must bring them all back together. Our fourth discipleship step as a church is to serve others and proclaim the gospel. This is good. This is a step towards understanding that vertical and horizontal reconciliation and healing are all parts of the gospel and the work. I like how the Latino theologian Gustavo Gutierrez says, it is not enough to say that love of God is inseparable from the love of one's neighbor. 
it must be added that love of God is unavoidably expressed through love of neighbor. I get so mad when people talk about a social justice gospel as if it is something other than the gospel. There is no social justice gospel. The social justice is part of the gospel. People reconciled to God work to reconcile others to God and to each other. Loving God means loving neighbor and express and being opposed to those when we see our neighbor being oppressed or wronged. Love demands that we join them in the work of liberation, spiritually, physically, politically, financially. In whatever ways people are bound, we are called by God to love and serve our neighbor. This is what it means when Jesus is king. Where there is injustice, those who pray, your kingdom come on heaven as it is on earth, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, must engage to put things right. So whenever people surrender to the kingdom of Jesus, we are called to work for God's kingdom to come. Social activism, justice work. I've been thinking a lot this last little bit about the way we celebrate when we send teams with Multiply to go and work for building leaders for peace in Turkey, in Syria, in Colombia. When people work to reconcile neighbors, we celebrate it when it happens somewhere else. What about when it's in our own backyard? This is part of participating in the deliverance and liberation of people from anything that separates them. It takes a special kind of blindness to read the Old Testament prophets and fail to see that God is a God of justice, who stands on the side of the poor and the oppressed, that God is the God who hears the cries of the captives. Yesterday, with the news of the school in Kamloops in mind, I read Genesis 4, verse 10 again. Genesis 4.10, God's word comes to Cain after he murdered his brother, and the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 215 children buried in the ground. The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The Lord looked and was upset at the lack of justice. The blood of our neighbors is crying out from the ground, and it is not simply enough to worship God with songs and prayers and nice words. We must worship God by doing justice, righting wrongs, Any worship of God that is not involved in reconciliation and justice is worshiping a God based on what we want rather than the God of scriptures. To do justice is to work for reconciliation. To work for reconciliation is to worship God. The damage and legacy of the church with our indigenous neighbors is horrible. And horrible does not begin to capture the word. I cannot separate our church from the churches that actually ran those schools. As I consider Ephesians, it says that Christ is the head of the church, singular. God does not have a united church, a Methodist church, an Anglican church, a Mennonite church, or a Coptic church. God, Jesus, is the head of one church. Things that are done in the name of Jesus are our responsibility. Christ is the head of the church. It is on all of us who claim the name of Jesus to work to heal. 
We cannot say it was in the past. I spent this last weekend down at White Buffalo Youth Lodge again teaching hunter safety. At the same time, I just finished reading a powerful memoir by a Métis man named Jesse Thistle who talks about his experience being homeless in Canada. As I drove around 20th in our downtown, I was hyper alert. My heart was crushed at the number of homeless indigenous people that live on our streets. They are everywhere. This is not in the past. The legacy of lost culture, lost language, lost family, lost land, lost self-governance is still hurting our neighbors. As a church, we have to do more. I feel helpless. I feel overwhelmed. I do not know how. I don't know the best way forward. It is overwhelming. The only thing I know is that not doing something is not an option. I love this image from the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kilmer. She has a chapter called Council of Pecans. You see, pecans are such an interesting plant because they do not produce fruit on their own schedule. Unlike other plants, they don't have a predictable schedule based on their size of reserves of stored starch. Instead, she writes, If one tree fruits, they all fruit. There are no soloists. Not one tree in a grove, but the whole grove. Not one grove in the forest, but every grove all across the country and all across the state. The trees act not as individuals, but as collective. Exactly how they do this, we don't yet know. But what we see is the power of unity. What happens to one happens to all. We can all starve together or feast together. All flourishing is mutual. Pecan trees all come at the same time across the whole state. If some of us are starving, we all are. You see, if we want another great awakening, if we want another revival, it will come on the back of those who prayed, yes, but it will also come on the wings of justice, of the church rediscovering the thick gospel of Jesus that is not just about souls going to heaven, but about the incarnational work of bringing God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. It will will come because when people ask, is Jesus the king? We will point and we will say, go and report to those who ask what you hear and see that those who are blind are able to see. Those who are crippled are walking. People with skin diseases are cleansed and those who are deaf now hear. Those who are dead are raised and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. Friends, make no mistake. God has looked at our country, our city. He has seen and is upset at the absence of justice. If the church does not step up and do the will of God, God will use someone else. The one sure thing is that the blood of the innocent, the cries of the oppressed, will not be ignored. And either the church will be part of the solution or it will hear God say, take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to your melody of your harps. 
but let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos 5, verse 8. The Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. Lord, please let that not be true of us. Let it not be true that there was no one to intervene. God, may your church be your arms as you bring victory and justice to our land. Amen. I cannot think of any other way to move on from that but to confess our sins. Would you confess with me? We confess because we have lived beneath our calling as God's holy people. We have lived beneath our identity as sons and daughters of the Most High. We confess to you, Lord, what we are. We are not the people we like others to think we are. We are afraid to admit even to ourselves what lies in the depths of our souls. But we do not want to hide our true selves from you. We believe that you know us as we are, yet you love us. Help us not to shrink from self-knowledge. Teach us to respect ourselves for your sake. Give us the courage to put our trust and guidance in your power. We also confess to you, Lord, the unrest of the world to which we contribute, in which we share. Forgive us that so many of us are indifferent to the needs of those around us. Forgive our reliance on weapons of terror, our discrimination against people of different race, our preoccupation with material standards, and forgive us Christians for being so unsure of our good news and so unready to tell it. Raise us out of the paralysis of guilt into freedom and energy of forgiven people. And for those who through long habit find forgiveness hard to accept, we ask you to break their bondage, set them free, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.